Welcome back to Sci-Fi and Fantasy Read-Along. I am ATN. Hey, I'm Yule. And I'm DM Phil. Hey guys, welcome back. Heck yeah! Do you know what this is? Do you guys know what this is? It's the penultimate chapter. Ooh, GRE words, huh, Yule? <laughs> That's a good one. I like that one. Yes, uh, we we are on chapter 23, which is the second to last chapter in this book, of course, ignoring the epilogue, um, but we'll be covering that next time in, at the end with the final chapter. We're just going to put them all in together into one, but this is the penultimate chapter. Are you guys, uh, how'd y'all, how'd y'all find it? It was a strange chapter, actually. It was obviously yeah. wrapping up loose ends, yes. and at the same time, continuing the action. <laughs> yes, but there, yes. no real action. But yes, plenty of things going on. It was strange. Yeah, it's kind of like the you know the people. There was a little bit of action. It was an exhale, more of a chapter. Let's, hey, there's some there's some key points here in this chapter that we have been complaining about it for like twenty chapters. Who's been complaining? <laughs> At least one out of three of us, and we're not going to name names. <laughs> Complaining about what? <laughs> we get a lot of answers. Uh, there are a few questions that remain, but we'll talk about those at the end. In the meantime, let's talk about last chapter really quickly. In our last episode, Vorkin accepted Lacine's contract to kill the Torud Cabal to a man that, or a woman, whatever. There are nine of them. Raced arrived in Darujistan to his great dismay. And the Cabal, the Torud Cabal again, were instructed by Rake to ready themselves because it wasn't over. Yeah, and in that time, we had a death or two, or actually so many uh, non-player characters got killed also. <laughs> we lost Mammoth. Oh yeah, Mammoth. Uh, so that's one person that Vorkin doesn't even have to take out. He's already dead. Mm-hmm. Raced. Yep, uh, raced. You know, kind of a whimper, you know, more than a bang. He showed up in town after that thunderstorm, and then... I know, everybody talked about this guy, like he's going to destroy the planet, right? And then they get here, and he's wiped out pretty quickly. So I gotta ask you, it was like, if he's wiped out pretty quickly, what are the wizards in that party capable of doing, right? It's a good question, and it's a question that uh, other people in the book have as well. They're also wondering. Go ahead, Yule. Well, I was going to say, they didn't expect to have Malazans on their side also. And one of them was Quick Ben. and Who is no slouch. No slouch. In fact, in a little bit, we'll be talking about how not a slouch he is. Right. That's true. So there are surprises in this chapter. There are some grave disappointments. Uh, and there are a few triumphs. But they're small triumphs at the best. So why don't we, why don't we get into it? Yes? Let's talk about the preamble. You know what? It's a nice short one for once. <laughs> Let's yeah. Last week it was TLDR. You know that damn poem that just went on and on and on and on. And now we have one that's like eight words long, and I got absolutely nothing out of it. <laughs> it I mean, it was the exact same effect. You know, I'm just kind of like, huh? Hey, I could not tie it into this chapter, so I I don't know what to say, right? The only thing I can think of that it could possibly relate to is it said she turned the blade on herself. And then, like, it was, like, last chapter or two chapters ago, I'm, I'm losing track, where it was Lady Simtal implied that she would kill herself with that ornamental dagger. 
That's right. That's the only thing I got here, but it didn't make any sense. I mean, well, it kind of does. I mean, let's say that's exactly what this is. Okay, let's just say it is. We did not get that final scene in the last chapter oh, of her life. Yeah, in this we will be, but it's a little bit more artful. It's not so suicidal, you know. We do not want to be in the room when she's taking that dagger and puncturing her own heart. Sure. Yule, hey Yule, I think you're right. This is like closure to an uh, to to an unanswered question. Did she or did she not? And that, and that would be interesting because a lot of the preambles are things that are happening in the chapter that we are to read, not usually continuing something from before. Right. This is the first time it's it's this is a closing point, not just a hint. Right. I mean, and of course, you know, because all of these messages that are being written here, these usually are about the chapter we're about to read. It doesn't seem that's the case now. Perrin is making his way into the darkness of Lady Simtol's garden when he steps into shadow, literally. So it is immediate. Like, he steps into this shadow, and there he is being savaged viciously by the Hound of Shadow, Rude. Rude tears him apart, essentially. Uh, like, destroys his armor, has, him in his, has his chest in his mouth, and is, like, chomping on him, and then drops him on the ground, and... You know, hey, when this opening scene, the first thing that came to my mind is because on last chapter we had talked about when Perrin went all animalistic on this uh, Groot. Finis, on Groot, exactly, and he was biting it, and we said, oh, because he's got, like, I don't know, uh, whatever, uh, blood of the hound in his veins or something like that. And we were on the impression, or we had talked about, the hound's actually supporting him in that endeavor. But here... I, I'm not feeling that support. <laughs> and yet Rude does not kill him. Yeah, he stopped. So there's something going on there. He stops short, and then there's a shadowy figure that arrives. And the shadowy figure says, huh, that's strange. The dog feels some kind of kinship with you. He did, but he also said he was premature. Well, yes, he did say that. That has more relevance, I think, to a couple of minutes from now. Okay, fair enough. But, uh, yeah, so there, I, you know, we've said it, we've gone over many times, something in the blood of the hound that Perrin touched so many chapters ago yeah. is still coming into play today, but we don't comprehend it. Is that what right. is also ultimately healing him also in this part? That's a good question. I don't know. I have no idea. And the only other thing I could think was, like, he's kind of in a not real world right now he's in shadow exactly so maybe what is happening here isn't like technically really affecting him although it does affect his chain later on it's possible that he's still being healed by uh the lady also like he's still somewhat a tool of opon mm -hmm. so you know despite rakes and you know telling him you're no longer being controlled that i don't that doesn't appear to be true well he does have chance right here so maybe that's well, it. Well, chance well, slipped almost, yeah. out of his reach. He was going for his sword when the dog attacked him the first time, and then the sword slipped out of his reach, and he can't grab it. Oh. And then the dog really mowed him down. Okay, now if the idea was to get rid of his sword, ultimately, because, you know, it's bad to be uh, associated with a god for so long, right? Yeah, uh, fatal. Uh, maybe Rude is actually not mauling him as much as preventing him from using that sword again. 
Okay, so there's a there's a thing that okay, so this shadowy figure that showed up introduces himself as Cotillion essentially, and they have several conversations in a very short span of time, and one of those conversations has to do with what you just said. Okay, so let's be clear: Cotillion is the rope for all of our listeners. Cotillion, the rope, the patron saint of assassins, a count of knots unending. This is the person who had been controlling Sari. It's Cotillion that is talking about how Sari isn't being... He's not controlling Sari anymore, Absalar. Yeah. But he kind of points to the sword and says, but you're still being used by Opon. Yep, still holding onto that sword. Yeah. And that prompts Perrin to recall Rake's advice to get rid of it when your luck turns. And he's like, yeah, my, my luck kind of just turned. You know, the sword literally left his reach on purpose. Right. And so he couldn't use it. Now, he also was told to give that sword to his worst his enemy. His worst enemy. <laughs> Which will be <laughs> interesting later on, actually. <clears throat> well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happens. But he does. I mean, the sword's just lying there while they're talking about sorry. And before we get to the exchange of weapons and all of that kind of stuff, let's talk briefly about sorry Because Cotillion says that he treated her with mercy. Yes. And that he could, at a whim, give her back all of the memories that he's been protecting her from. That was a very impactful moment for me when I had the impression that Cotillion, in his own way, was still very... He, he had compassion. He knew what he was yeah. doing. He didn't have he, to be gentle. He chose he to He had more compassion towards Sari than the lady, Opon, had to Perrin. Yes, exactly. That was a big moment for me. And Sari yeah. was the one that ultimately killed Perrin the first time also. <laughs> that was or, his first of numerous deaths. <laughs> interesting. I don't know if I could say that Cotillion is being a nice guy in not making someone remember all the crappy things they did because of him. Not nice. Well, I mean, even... Perrin accuses Cotillion of having stolen her life, and he says, well, she has it back, and you don't because you still have that sword. Right. He said he was merciful, that he could have her remember all of those things, but he's choosing not to out of mercy. He's being kind to her. He used her for two years. And so, so I ask you, what is Riga actually up to then? I don't know. And why, why does she have to further protect the Fisher girl from those memories and etc. if Cotillion didn't even leave any with her? Great question. Well, anyway, I don't think we're ever going to get an answer to that Actually, one. I think it's a little bit different. I think that maybe, this is spitballing here, Cotillion knew that Riga was there. Cotillion knew what Riga's intent were. Okay, so, hey, I'm spitballing here. I see you shaking your head. Okay, but I think that, so if he could give her memories back, then you're right. What? Why is Riga even there? But Riga was there to protect the Fisher girl. Riga will protect you. That is what she said. Riga will protect you. Right. Look to the Lord of Moon Spawn, or the Lord Spawned in Darkness. Who will help you but not know it. Well, I would assume that's what Riga is really providing. So was Cotillion trying to protect Sari this entire time? Probably not in the, you know, nature and nurture, right? And nature's kind of cruel, and nurture is like your mommy, you know, like c cradling you and like making sure you don't get splinters when you walk around. Y I, I yeah. Think it, maybe Riga's it, more like the mother, and Cotillion 
was just kind of like, okay, well, I'll make one consideration for this girl. I'm not going to let her remember all the things I did. I don't know. So just to just to make some connection here, I was thinking that in some way that Cotillion isn't that different from Relic Nam, in that Relic Nam went was worried about going down the path of unredemption, and I think some some splinter of Cotillion. He's conscious of other people's feelings. I don't know. Maybe he's still trying. It's a tenuous connection to his own humanity, even though he's ascended. I don't know. To me, this was a very interesting moment, and it was something I didn't expect. When you think about the rope, like the Lord of Murder, or whatever you want to call him, as being absolutely heartless, this was the opposite. It was him protecting somebody who was absolutely innocent. And I thought that was amazing. I don't think he had to do a lot of work to do it. It doesn't matter. The fact that he made an effort says a lot. I remember him from chapter one being the one that wasn't crazy. Mm. I mean, you have a very good point. He does still seem to have some humanity, but like, who knows why he was really doing it and who knows what Riga was really up to. I don't think we're ever going to get an answer. Of course we're not, but I wanted to bring it up because I thought it was awesome. So... A long time ago, we had been talking about Anamander Rake's advice for Perrin to get rid of that sword when his luck turned, and this is the moment, apparently. And Cotillion's kind of eyeing the sword. He's like, hey, that's your sword lying there. And Perrin's like, you can have it. I don't want it. So (laughs) Cotillion picks the sword up. And Perrin feels this incredible burden lift from his shoulders, and he likens it to the release after the thinnest let go of his soul. So when he gave up the sword, Cotillion says, ah, wisdom returns quickly once the bond is severed. The point here is, Yule, you, Atia, and me, we've all identified that Crocus and Perrin have been acting weird, irrational, strange. Tattersail, too. Yes, and it's been for like 20 chapters. And even even Lauren was saying the same thing. She was acting weird. And this is not... Right now, we're finally getting it. Is that Opan robs people of their wisdom, their ability to make logical decisions. And we've been railing against Perrin for doing dumb stuff, like going crazy over Tattersail. We've been railing against... Crocus, Crocus. Doing, yeah, yeah, Crocus too for doing doing this dumb dumb love thing with uh, with that uh, Darl girl, and now it's finally after all these chapters, it is explained to us that they have been influenced and robbed of their wisdom by Opan. We knew that this was happening. Like we we've identified it in places, but we've never actually been able to put a word to the rule behind it, right? Like, what what they actually do. Like, we knew Perrin was acting crazy. And it took us a while to figure out that, oh, we understand. We, we, we did get it in the moment. Well, sort of, a little late. but It took us a long time to figure it out. And we've had all these speculations. Mm-hmm. But here, the rope cotillion is coming out and saying it. The gods were robbing you of your wisdom. Yes. And now, right. like, as soon as he gives up his sword... His yeah comes back. That's right. Comes back. It was coming back. It has been coming back for a little while though, because like he doesn't always have his hand on that sword. Right. He left it at that table for a while. Yep. He's been trying to get rid of the sword. He's been thinking about getting rid of the sword. He had claimed his own path and had been following it, and so like wisdom was returning. And I would argue that even in this moment, like Cotillion hasn't been his ever ready companion. 
Cotillion saw him in the past and is seeing him now and can see the change in him. But I would say that Perrin already has his wisdom back. Well, he's already decided that he's getting rid of the sword. Like, he's been making the effort. So Cotillion picks up the sword and then tells Perrin, I'm going to give you another piece of advice. Try to go unnoticed. You know, just try. And then, you know, if you ever see a hound again, run. And then he he disappears. So uh, just before that, uh, when the all that all the weight of the world basically uh, left him, the explanation of how he felt when the Finnis let go of him. There is also a moment with the hound, and when the dog's looking at him. Yeah, he glanced up in Rude's eyes, and he saw something almost soft. Yeah, and uh, that's interesting. It might go with that whole blood thing, and how they have a kinship, and. Yeah, maybe that hound wasn't really ripping him as much apart as separating him from that sword yet again. That's very, very possible. He did shake the man until the sword fell out of the scabbard. Right, right. Uh-huh. I don't. I think I. I just feel like he could have been a little gentler and accomplished. No, see, the that's same the thing goal. about a hound, regardless of its size, a dog. They got they got some paws and a mouth, and if they're not good with their paws, they're only using their mouth when they're playing. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> old uh, old Perrin returns to the material plane or wherever the heck he came from and he's back in Simtal's garden and he's a mess he stands up he goes to find Mallet then he tells Mallet hey I'm gonna go find Lorne why is he so um, into finding Lorne that's a good question I mean he but was I think earlier he still wants to kill her I mean I don't know I go back and forth on this like he says he wants to kill her, and then he's like, I don't know, maybe I don't. And then he says he wants his revenge. And I just, I'm not sure, but he definitely does want to go and find her. At least a confrontation. The plan last chapter was that he and Kalam were going to kill her. Right. And so now he wants to go and find her. Huh. So I don't know. Having just witnessed Mammoth and what possessed Mammoth die or be destroyed, Crocus departs the estate on a mission to find Baruch. So out in the streets, there none of the festivities are going on. Like, it's been shut down. So whatever Animander Rake did last chapter, it was very successful. That right? guy might come back at us with the sword. Big sword. Big sword. Dripping chains. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, right? it's like you could hear the creaking or the smell the creaking. <laughs> yeah. Of the wheel. Yeah, it's very frightening, yeah. to be honest. Um, so Crocus, young hand, he's you know, he's got the streets to himself, so he's bolting. He just runs for it. And at some point he thinks he hears something, so he looks up and Moon Spawn is floating over the city of Darujistan very, very low. Very, very low. So that is what drove the people into their homes and off of the streets very successfully. Um, so he sees that and then, you know, well, what, he can't do anything about it. His curiosity is limited because he's got a mission and he continues on his way. There's a lot of words in this part of the chapter for so little <laughs> actually occurring. Yeah, I think it was just a... Uh, is it uh, just uh, to get a set up with everything that's going on in the city? And, it's to explain why, how the streets were cleared. Right. And, I mean, there is mourning. I mean, Crocus is upset that his uncle is dead. He's like, what am I going to do? You know? Uh-huh. And then he's like, oh, i got to go to Baruch. <laughs> this guy will have the answers for me. I thought this was a segue. There wasn't a lot there. It just explained it was. what we're, what's going on and how we're getting to the next section. 
there are a few of those in this chapter. We're going to cover all but one of them. Back at the Simtal estate, the place is not quite abandoned. Krupp is not going to let any of those delicacies go to waste. So this was another one of those sections that's really just a transition. But it serves a couple of important purposes. The first of which is that Krupp notes that his dreams ever turn out to be true. He dreamt, and whatever it was that he saw has now come to pass. And he says that based on the spread in front of him, all is right with the world. Uh, Which is strange because of all the things that are still to come (laughs) in this chapter. He does acknowledge that there is still the coin in play. Mm-hmm. That the I think he says, yet the end has not come, and they await the spin of the coin. He almost feels like a chorus in like a Greek play right now. Yeah. You know, he's like yeah. singing what's happening and what we still have to pay attention to. Sure. Oh, it's good to know where everybody is also as this night is going down. Like Moon Spawn is in the air, the festivities have died, and Krupp is eating. <laughs> he's there like scavenging all of the food everybody else ran from mammoth and the tyrant for their lives or if they even saved their lives right a lot of people got murdered there but old krupp is just going through the kitchens and like ooh. well yummy. let's ooh. let's remember krupp also went to sleep first and then got up and then now he's getting food he took a power nap <laughs> So since leaving the estate, Lauren has been following the coin bearer. She earlier sensed the death of the Jagged Tyrant, and she has concluded that that means that Whiskey Jack is still alive, but that can be taken care of later. She is firmly, securely in her identity as the adjunct of the Empress, and I will re-express my regret for her decision. Yeah, she says that Anything that was Lorne is no longer. She's just the hand of the Empress. Yeah. You know, you have to be resigned in who you are and what you do. No. Well. You don't have to be. When you're doing something like this, you do. You know, when you're this. She, she made that choice. She did. And uh, even though she's waffled at times or felt like she has been, maybe the waffling was more opon. <laughs> and yeah. who, who she really is, is that person that's following the Empress 100%. Well, I think she said it very well. She said, like a drowning voice deep within her mind came a question heavy with dismay and despair. Nothing says it more than she's suppressing the human at that point and fully embracing Lorne, the adjunct. I think it's pretty sad, personally. Uh, Everybody else is, like, gaining their independence throughout this book. You know, that's kind of the the character arc for a lot of these people. You know, they start off at, at this point, and they go through to this point and they have a growing journey not her she starts as the adjunct she ends as the adjunct i i think there is an acceptance there is a a choice that has been made and she is her own person even in not being her own person there you go all right i i I don't like her choice for her sake i don't like her choice but that's that's acceptable So Crocus, at one point, while she's following him, looks up and is marveling at Moonspawn. And she kind of, I think she gets a little chuckle out of that because he's been running through the streets and didn't notice. And, like, she knew all along that it was there. Anyway, so as he's doing this and is distracted, she retrieves a glass vial. She kind of shakes it up. And then she tosses it across the street. 
And out of the smoke that starts to rise from it comes the Lord of the Galane. And she tells him that if his task is complete, he has earned his freedom. And then she pursues Crocus, who has taken off again. Now, this Galane is spelled with a Y as opposed to Kerald Gulane, right? Yes. Which It's G-A-L-A-Y-N. Right. Which, as far as I'm concerned, it could just be a mispronunciation of the same word. <laughs> sure. sure. Or oh, a no, it'd be the same. Misspelling. Yes, yeah, thank you. A misspelling of the same word. I looked in the book and I didn't see anything with Lord, Galane, Lord of the Galane in here. Right. Or well, what does that tell you? <laughs> Temporary character? Uh, maybe, well, I mean, in the last two chapters, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seems pretty. Uh, seems pretty scary off camera. <laughs> At least we have seen in the past there was a demon that was summoned by Quickbin, who I guess he had stolen the vial and tossed it out, and Pearl arrived on the scene, a different kind of demon, and this one apparently is more powerful. And what is it? It's uh, Tatrin's Gambit. Baruch is alone in his study mourning the death of Mammoth. He's thinking about some of the stuff that Rake has told him over time, and he realizes that the possession, that Mammoth being possessed by the Jagged Tyrant, was something that Rake knew about, that that was the subject that was too sensitive to discuss at the fate. And he kind of curses Rake because he doesn't think he would have even believed him if he had been told at the time. So he was possessed probably when he was in that deep sleep, right? I'm assuming, yes. He never actually escaped. Right. He was let go Mm -hmm. as, you know, he was dominated and then released into the wild. So that he could, like, I guess, move into that body, raced. Yeah. I mean, as necessary, right? Right. You know, if if you were creating avenues of escape for yourself and paths towards power, like you would cover all sorts of ground. And that's one of them. You know, if if it was within your abilities, you would absolutely dominate somebody as a just in case. Right. I might need your body later. Hang on. Well, I think I think this is another awesome example of how Rake, while initially was deemed like impulsive and reactionary, is actually a brilliant strategist and thinks about so many aspects. It's like three-dimensional or four-dimensional chess. Kind of like Krupp, right? That might not be a bad analogy, yeah. Able to see all of the avenues to success. I didn't think about that, but I think Krupp has an ability I think Krupp has a supernatural ability, but I think Rake does it based on 100,000 years of experience, but yeah. Extraordinary wisdom. All right, so without announcement, the witch Derudin arrives. She does not have her servant. Baruch also had dismissed Rold earlier in the night, so she arrives, and Baruch's a little bit prickly about it at first, but he slowly comes to realize that she doesn't think he should be alone tonight. Like, Mamet just died. They must have been extremely close. Like, it's her gift. She's bringing him the gift of, like, compassion and love with her presence. And so they, they smoke together and drink together and kind of mourn together. There's two things here that I thought were really interesting, and this is one of the things I like um, Steven Erickson for, is that he's putting a lot of development into the character of Darun, even though we just met her. But he's still putting a lot of development into her character and her motivations and why she's doing things. And it's not just a person or an NPC or a name or some gray body that's doing things. And that's something I I continue to find very fascinating and appealing about Erickson's writing. And the other thing, this is like just humor here, 
when her servant was let go and she had to resupply her own water pipe. <laughs> and she's like, oh, such mundane exertions. <laughs> Sorry, that's just so funny. Like, I don't know. It's like, is that the no royal one wiper? Clean their own pipe. Right? It doesn't matter. That's first world problems. Oh, it was just funny, right? That she yeah. she is so evolved that she doesn't have to do anything for herself. Right. Now, it, it's as she's uh, consoling Baruch that they talk about Quick Ben and the Malazans helping them out. Yes. She's all, oh, there were uh, uh, munitions <laughs> that helped us out. We wondered about that last chapter is if she was smart enough to figure out that those were Malazan spies. And obviously, we find out right now she definitely picked it yeah, up. She, and she delivers that information to Baruch. Like, she's the one that tells Baruch that she found them. Mm-hmm. She found the Malazans. Right. <laughs> she's all. She wasn't even looking. She says, uh, well, Quick Ben was like jumping all over her and uh, uh-huh. opening every warrant all at once. And she's all, yeah. Twice. He has, uh, Twice he has control over seven Warrens. And Barrick's like, what? No. That. Is that no. even How possible? How be? <laughs> yeah. Kind of putting, like, you know, we were saying how badass these people were, but they, they had some very significant help. Yes. And they didn't know about the Azath at first either. That's the other yeah. thing that she mentions to him. He didn't know about it. He didn't sense it. Uh, you know, I don't know how these things work, but we get a tiny bit more information about the Azath or Azath, however it is pronounced. And what is it that we figure out? We figure out that they hunger for mages. Um, and so, like, the Cabal is going to have to kind of take them into consideration because they did not know that the Azath were around. So they have to tread lightly now. Like, I'm not sure about that one. Sounds to me like they might be a race. Oh, but I, yeah. I, I guess we'll learn more. Is an is an Asath a force of nature? I thought it was a force of nature, but it is it is a is it a sentient focus on balancing the world? I don't know. I can totally see it as a reflexive thing. You know, like a white blood cell. It's just like, hey, you're a very powerful source of magic. Hey, that's what I like to eat. Yum. Well, I, that's right? that's kind of how I that's how I interpreted it. Is it was a essentially an involuntary reflex of nature to make sure that somebody doesn't come and mess everything up out of balance so, yeah. magical white blood cells that sounds great Yule. let's go with that right, well let's go with that so what it said in the last chapter is they arise where unchained power threatens life i mean that's pretty specific right. also it i is, mean like lots is. of things threaten life but they're not there for a forest fire you know. I don't think that the Cabal has to worry about anything if they don't decide to become tyrants in their own right. Right. Sure. So long as they're cool, everything's fine. Everything's fine. All right, so while they're having this conversation, they both kind of startle because they feel the demon unleashed. And then right after that, they feel two of the Cabal wink out in violent deaths. So they just lost Perald and Tholus. And again, Rake's advice and Rake's, you know, Rake has been correct all along. Everything he's told Baruch has kind of come to pass. And Baruch is kind of upset by this because he knows now that Vorkin has started killing members of the Cabal. Well, is it possible that was the demon killing them and they were confronting the demon? I wasn't sure if it was the demon killing people or Vorkin. 
at the end of this. You know, like he says, Vorkin at the end. Right. Right. I'm going to go ahead and ascribe it to Vorkin because it was a surge of magic and then the winking out of the lives. Right. Dude, is she that good? Because that was like, she got... Com- she's a high mage and an assassin. She, yes, she's that good. Yeah, but she was commissioned like 20 minutes ago. Well, she wants that 900k. Oh. Yeah. oh. And the title. And and rule of the city. Yeah. It's her city. It's already her city. You know, it's just like, let's make it official. Anamander Rake stands atop Kroll's Belfry. Having done its job, Moonspawn is moving away to the west, and Solana is flying nearby. Rake whispers to her, this is his fight. She's had her fight, but if he falls, then she may avenge him. Kroll appears suddenly beside Andamander Rake, and they have a conversation like two old men complaining that the world has moved beyond them. Well, definitely it's moved beyond Kroll. Oh, yeah. He's like, I feel completely out of place. Like, how do you do it? What what am I supposed to do, basically? Right. I mean, the thing about Animander Rake is that his whole thing is, like, trying to spur his people onto wanting to live, right? Yeah. So that, at least, is a reason to be sticking around. But Kroll, who's been out of commission for however long, he wanted to take race with him, right? Yeah, he had planned to return to the Gates of Chaos with company. Right, it sounded like it would have been like grumpy old men in chaos, you know? Yes. And it would have been, oh, a really fun buddy fantasy deities that want to kill people. What a weird book. (laughs) What a weird book that would have been. But Race is too big a jerk and had to go and do what he did. (laughs) Yeah. That is kind of what this is. (laughs) Definitely... uh, one person sticking with life and then the other one kind of like not, I guess. I don't know what it's ultimately about. Like to me, it just seemed like they were kind of commiserating that the world had changed drastically and that maybe that neither one of them, you know, like the last chapter was to and point of fact, Raced was ill prepared for the modern world. Like the modern world was not willing to have him. You know, he was out of place. He was an anachronism and the world just devoured him. Right? He got out, he stretched his legs, and then found out, uh oh, this place is ready for me. And, you know, maybe that's the kind of thing that, you know, purpose and meaning are not inherent. You know, we have to find our own. So. Yeah, Race was doing pretty good when he was dealing with, you know, centuries old dragons and stuff like that, right? Yeah. But then he had to, with the new people, you know. With these newfangled gadgets. Damn kids. (laughs) Oh, I don't know what this telephone's all about, but I got to get out of (laughs) here. You remember when touch tone was a big deal? I do. All right. So Rake promises Kroll that he will try not to destroy his temple. Since he's back in the world and he's stuck in this temple, he's not going to he's going to try not to destroy it. And then Kroll bows and vanishes. Well, I think I think part of this huge section all the way up to this point was really just trying to yet again glorify Animator Rake on what an amazing person he is. Like, f- did it work? I it did for me. I mean, I was very touched. Where first is when he talked about uh, Solana, where he's like, "Look, you fought, mm. you've helped. Go home. I will take care of this." So basically, he's willing. To put his life on the line ahead of everybody else, right? 
Yep. And right. the second part was when he was reminiscing with a god, and he's when they were talking about like how do you keep going? It's like he's trying to attain what Rake has achieved, and he says, "Do I seek out new battles, new games to play in the company of Ascendants?" It's it's already been told that Rake is above that. He's not playing games. He's still the defender. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah Unlike does. the twins, he's the defender. And the last part is. Like he says, when Kroll asks him, he's like, you know, I can only manifest, this is the only place on this earth where I can manifest. And Rake says, I will try to protect your temple. That, that, that sort of respect, right? He didn't have to give that respect. He doesn't say he'll protect it. He says he'll try not to destroy it. Yeah, I'll try it. not to. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I understand your point, and it's a very good one. And I totally agree with you. Like, there's a lot of things about Andamanda Rake that I really love, and it seems like every time he's in a chapter, there's another one, right? He's, he's, in my opinion, he is the hero of this book. There might be, like, one more thing in this part of the chapter. This part? That's really cool about Andamanda Rake. The minute that Kroll vanishes, down on the street below appears the Lord of the Ghislaine. And he's, like, sniffing the air and looking around. He turns into, like, what do they call it, a dun dragon or something like that? Dun is a color. It's brown. Yeah. Just means brown. And then he begins to veer. And he changes his shape. He's a soul taken. And Rake is like, hmm, I can do that, too. He just uh, turns into a dragon at the end of this part. <laughs> yes, yes. Bigger than Solana, the biggest of the five dragons that we saw. Right. 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 Yeah, she was twice as big as the other four dragons that had opposed raced. And he is larger than she is. You know, we were just talking about Rake. <laughs> He's a badass. He's soul taken. He is a dragon. This is confirmation. Like, we've known this basically from the very beginning since Tattersail's initial reading of the deck of dragons that the Lord of dark was half dragon right i don't know if half is an appropriate term but the fact that he can veer soul taken he's shape changer he is a dragon he is also a person and he's very very large and he is climbing into the night sky and thinking about the empress and he says she has pushed and pushed and pushed and ever he has given and he is now tired of giving uh, yeah, it's awesome. I, I assume that means that he's just talking about the Lord of the Galane when he's, well, he's pissed backed away off from at every the Empress. combat. Yeah, well, he, he has. He's always he's always retreated. And, and, and the thing is, is that he, when he was, uh, I think it was when he was talking to Baruch, uh, Andermander Rake was saying how he was watching and destroy his own people and that he was like mm-hmm. suppressing fire to prevent those people from dying or whatever yeah well he killed the demons <laughs> oh, that's he what it was yeah the he demons killed the that... demons yeah <laughs> but it, but when you see it from the malazan's point of view and they're talking about it oh he turned tail and ran yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. well he, he, apparently he's not going to do that anymore he's standing his ground in derusha state right. That was something that Baruch and Derudin had said in their conversation when they realized that a demon lord had been unleashed was that the only person that was going to be able to handle this was Anamander Rake. And apparently he's taken up the he's taken up the mission as his own. And also that he knew this was this was why he'd stuck around. This is why he wanted high ground. So right. like again, he was predicting events as they are coming to pass. Yeah, we all thought it was raced, right? I mean, we yeah. all thought that 
the Malazans were right. They were going to send Raistin to look for his finest, and in doing so, he was going to destroy Darujistan. And if he didn't, he was probably going to waste all the power of Animander Rake. Meanwhile, Rake didn't do anything with them. <laughs> didn't have to lift a finger. The Malazans took care of right. it. Right. Well, well they're, they're... did he know that? <laughs> no, it's just like, I think it's to him, it's like chess, right? And so he knew that the Jagat Tyrant was just the opening move of a chess match. He also knew that there were sufficient mages at Simtals to take care of it. Like, he said that to Baruch when they were in the carriage together. So, you're right. It is like chess. And, and he's he's seen all the moves in advance. He knows exactly what's playing out. I know, because he was clearly holding himself back this entire time. Yeah, still is, kind of, right? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, it's just true. He was holding himself back. Because, remember, I was just like... Is he going to do anything? There's this person coming to the party, and he's like, no, we're cool. I'm just going to I'm gonna sit this yeah. one out for a while. But he knew. He knew. Kalam is running through the empty streets, trying to catch up to Fiddler and Hedge to prevent them from destroying the city. Because they're off to go and blow up the munitions, and Kalam realized last chapter that the munitions were planted around the gas mains. <laughs> And it would just, the whole city's going to explode if they do even one of them. So he's trying to prevent that. And eventually he just runs straight into them. They ran into each other. That's what happened. I thought for sure Philip would really get a kick out of this scene with the rusty sword. You know, I wanted to say it, but I didn't want to waste time. But yes. (laughs) Get that piece of junk out of my face. What are you trying to give me an infection? Exactly. I love that scene. You're absolutely right. Oh, it's hilarious. It's Fiddler and Hedge, and they're not good at, like, they don't ever want to swing weapons if they can help it, right? And uh-uh. it, one's always leaving his sword like in a back alley or something like that. Do you remember <laughs> on the roof in Pale, Fiddler climbed up to talk to Dujek and then threw his sword in a puddle? No, he was talking to Whiskey yeah. Jack and he threw his sword in a puddle. And when Dujek shows up, he's like, Fiddler, is that your sword lying in a puddle? Yeah, I remember that. Trust me. Oh my God, <laughs> it was so hilarious. And now it's a rusty sword. <laughs> Because, of course, he didn't oil it, yeah, right? And, and he can't. So, like, obviously, there's nothing he can do to Kalam except give him an infection. <laughs> right. All right. So they're on the run, though. They, they saw something up the street, and they were running for their lives. They have already abandoned their mission. Kalam didn't have to stop them at all. They just happened to run into each other right here. But what's coming down the street? Tatrin's precious lord. Tatrin's gambit, the lord of the Galane. Let's, just, let's read the description, if you don't mind, Yule. Give me the whole thing. A 12-foot-tall creature shambled down the middle of the road, hunched shoulders, wrapped in a glittering cape with a high cowl. A two-bladed axe was slung in its wide dragon-hide belt, its handle as long as Kalam was tall. The creature's wide, squat face held two slitted eyes. That is a 12-foot-tall badass. That's what that is. Yeah, imagine 12 feet tall. I mean, I am sub-six for sure. So, like, the top of your is... house, probably, is 12 feet? It's 12 feet tall. I mean, you think, like, oh, the top of a, a single-story house. Big whoop, right? But, you know, go outside and look at that. <laughs> I would run as well. And then think about something with a two-bladed axe coming at you. So, this is the guy walking down the street that scared Fiddler and Hedge off. And he's not even trying to scare people. He, this is the guy that's sniffing around for Anamander Rake. 
So Kalam sends Fiddler and Hedge back to Simtal's estate, and then he watches as this thing veers. So this locks it in time with the last section where Animander Rake watched the Lord veer into a dun-colored dragon. That's right. The clang of metal close behind him causes Crocus to roll and dive, and when he whips around, there is the woman from the hills that attacked Cole, and she is in close combat with a tall man with two scimitars, and she is losing. So the blows are going so fast that the eye cannot see them. The parries, the attacks, and little by little, she's on the defensive, she's backing up, and there are blooms of blood forming all over her body, her arms, her chest, her legs. She's being driven back by this mad man with two swords. It's like a Cuisinart or something. I'm sorry, it's sorry, it's like Drist. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think about that, but sure. As Crocus watches, a tall man steps next to him. He is wearing a crimson and gray long coat, and he says, Hey, lad, uh, you going someplace safe? Let me escort you out of here. And they turn and walk away from the combat. One look over his shoulder, and Lorne is got one arm, just doesn't even work anymore, and she's trying to disengage from combat. She was killer out on the desert, or in the plains. Until she met her match. Wow. I mean, but Cole didn't seem like he was a, you know, he was lame. Dude, that dude has been drunk for the past All right. year or two. Uh, then what about freaking, I can't remember who the other one's. Marilio. I mean, I know he was a little underarmed, but Marilio, come on. Marilio got a hit yeah, in. Yeah, that's true. But ultimately, she better than Marilio. Yeah. When we're talking about a hierarchy of power, right? The people in Darujistan are inferior for the most part. Like the Marilio, the, the adventuring party, mm-hmm. the Krupp and company, they are in many ways inferior to the bridge burners. And then the bridge burners are in many ways inferior to, you know, other people. On the grand scheme of things, Marilio and Cole are not like super potent, mm-hmm. right? Lauren was there to put them in their place and she was a badass. But now she's getting her ass handed to her. By a single individual, not a group of people, one man. Well, I did, I did want to point out something. Like This is the very first time that a combat wasn't over almost instantly. They sparred around, and he was like cutting her by second, by second, by second, by second. And realistically speaking, it probably only lasted 10 or 15 seconds. A couple rounds, yeah. Yeah. But he gets eight attacks around. Apparently he does, right? But, I mean, he, he never went for the death blow. He was whittling her. Crocus and this man who reveals himself to be named Fingers, they go for a little walk. They leave the combat behind, and he's kind of guiding them on his path. He lets them know that he's from the Sixth Blade of the Crimson Guard, and that they've been one of the two forces, at least two forces, that have been protecting the Coin Bearer. And Crocus is like, Coin Bearer, you've got the wrong guy. And so now we get confirmation, absolute confirmation, that this is a artifact. Because he says, there's probably a coin in your pocket. Probably has two faces, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a bold statement here. I think that these guys are the bridge burners on the other side. That makes sense. Wow, sure. yeah. So if you look, the man who was fighting with Lorne, his name was Corporal Blues... And he uses two scimitars, which is not exactly the same, but it's similar enough to Kalam, who uses two curved knives. Wow. Right? Who, who is also a corporal. 
up on the roof. They have Cowl. He's watching the streets and the roofs so that Fingers and Crocus can walk safely to Baruch's place. He's a hell of a mage. He's so powerful that he puts Surratt in her place. Right? That's right. And she's second only to Anamanda Rake. So this dude is a beast. So there's your quick bin, right? And then Fingers. There's your whiskey jack. And look at the coat he's wearing. Did you notice the colors? Gray and crimson? You remember what the Malazan colors are? Gray and burgundy. <laughs> Whoa, dude. You're blowing my mind. These are the counterpoint for the bridge burners. He even had a little, he had a brooch on his collar that he showed to Crocus. So that's what I think. Anyway, so Fingers drops Crocus off in front of Baruch's place. He says, hey, a powerful mage lives here. You're going to be all right? He's like, well, go on, get inside. Yeah, but he said, we feared you was walking blind and dumb, boy. And so he knew. He knew that Crocus didn't know that the coin was something. I think he also realized. Who, who do you think is who do you think is walking di- blind and dumb? I think it was Crocus. Yes. Okay. I thought you were assuming that it was Baruch, and I was I was yet to chastise you for that. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, no. I think this guy knows that um, the influence of a pawn was affecting this kid, and they were there to protect him. But um, beyond that, I mean, if you go all the way back to like chapter ten, page two forty three, Erickson wrote this two hundred thirty pages ago. Wrote what? That he's like, oh, well, we're going to protect the coin bearer. Essentially, we said, send in the sixth blade or what do you want to call it. But you're only seeing it now. That's incredible. I mean, seriously, like to be able to figure this stuff out, you need three people. I know that a lot of this stuff was a revelation to me when I read the book the first time. So on some level, you are rewarded for reading quickly because when Anamanda Rake veers and reveals himself to be a dragon... You can be surprised by that. You can be surprised by the fact that Krupp is the eel. You can be surprised mm-hmm. that these people were sent by Caladan Brood, you know, four, 13 chapters ago to come here and protect the coin bearer. And here they are, you know, like the surprises are endless if you're a little casual in your reading. <laughs> it so, definitely is. But you're like, wait a second. How did that happen? <laughs> Right. When did this happen? Soul taken what? (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Oh, damn. There's a glossary back here. (laughs) I just just figured that out like eight chapters ago. (laughs) So So there's always something we can all figure out later on. (laughs) Dude, I, I feel two orders of magnitude more richly rewarded by reading it slow with you guys. Oh, hell yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. This book is amazing if you give it the time. That's why we're doing That's this. That's why we're doing it. That's why we're doing That's this. That's why. Where are we? All right. So Crocus is safely with Baruch. That's where we are. Are you guys ready to move on? Poor Lorne. So Lorne has fled the combat with Corporal Blues, and she's in a super bad way. Like... I mean, she had already lost the use of one of her arms in the last section. Dead woman walking. She bar- she can't really see. Uh, she- and she's completely frustrated because she has never encountered somebody that could beat her that thoroughly. And her auditorial sword did not provide her any advantage because he wasn't using any magical aid. He was just better than her. Dude, that's frightening. It is frightening. But he let her live. To your point, Philip. And so she's trying to lick her wounds. And remember, Auditorial heals her, so she's not going to die from this. She just has to get away, and she has. 
but she runs into she runs into somebody in the streets and it's like there's nobody in the streets what the hell's going on yeah Mies is there waiting for her yeah me what she says that we knew who you were ever since circle breaker spotted you yeah ever since she came in the gate the eel says you need to you need to pay for what you've done yeah. He means pay all the way, I guess. <laughs> Unless Meese didn't understand the direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, go and scare her a bunch, okay? Yeah, yeah, go and scare uh-huh. her. Now, this is when Irilta arrives and distracts Lorne on the left, and they both pounce on Lorne, but it's Meese who delivers the two daggers to the chest. Yeah. It makes me think that no wonder they didn't care that Chert took it from Sorry. Yeah, like, oh, I can get over it. Yeah, it's just well, true. I think that they saw Sari as one of their own, yeah. right? To go all the way back to when that happened, and, you know, we were we were throwing around the idea that maybe they were going to protect the girl, you know. It's, I think it's way more than that. They they saw kinship in this girl, because yeah. these, are, these are killers. Yeah, they are. These women are killers. So Crocus is just a thief for the eel, and... Uh, yeah, you got Relic yeah. Nom for those you know, sporty de- deaths that need happen. But you got these ladies for the, the back alley stuff. Well, we didn't. I didn't see it coming, did you? No, what? I didn't. I uh, And I also didn't like it. It was sad. I felt pretty oh, bad for Lorne. It's like on. you said. Um, she just took a wrong turn at the end. It, I mean, think about it. Like, if she had stopped short, if she had planted the thinnest... And then gone to meet up with Tool. Yeah, yeah. that's how she Why? should have done it. Why? Because uh, whatever she had with Tool <laughs> was really in service of uh, the Empress anyway. I mean, unfortunately, everything she was doing was in that regard, and yeah, there was nothing like going to be different. She fulfilled her obligation to the Empress. Her, her, as far as I am concerned, she did. By by taking the Finnist into Darujistan, she completed that leg of the plan. She released the Jagged Tyrant. She took the Finnist and lifted his bait to kill everybody. All she had to do then was walk away. You don't walk away. There's only one way you walk away. <laughs> the only way you, you know leave. What? I would have walked away the minute I realized that the Tyrant had been destroyed. <laughs> Right, because you know, you know that part of the plan is to get the tyrant there to do all of this work, so that blah blah blah. Right, that's part of the chain of events that needs to happen for the plan to go off according to plan. And like when when step three of the plan just crashes and crumbles, and the tyrant is dead, it's like abandon ye all hope, get out, get out now. I liked Lorne. I am sad that she's gone. I think it's I don't know. I'm, I'm well. well, she's almost gone. I would go to the funeral. She's almost gone. All right. So Perrin finds Lorne as if guided to her. She's lying in the mouth of an alley on a side street. He watches her die. And then he collects her sword. And then he's faced with both of the twins, Opon. They're there. And they're like, you gave him our sword. Yeah. That's right. He's like, wow. That's not good for the twins that some uh, uh, god, some deity, has uh, something linked to them, I guess, right? They don't sound happy about it at all. No, they're not happy about it. Um, They're enemies, and (laughs) the enemy has one of their artifacts. 
I mean, that's what that's what Lauren was after when she was going after the coin bearer. She wanted to kill the coin bearer and take the coin to give it back to Tayshrin and Lacine so that they could hurt Opon for interfering. It was like she wanted to have revenge against them. And that's exactly what Opon is afraid of now because a deity who has animosity towards them has control of their sword. Maybe in a way, uh, Perrin's worst enemy in this book was Opon. And by giving that sword to an enemy, <laughs> his greatest enemy was Opon. So give it to their greatest enemy, or at least what seems to be their big, big bad right now. You have a very good point. I think it's an appropriate gift because uh, he doesn't particularly like Cotillion and Shadow Throne. And he doesn't like Opon. So. Definitely not when he was talking to them at that moment either. I mean, he was right. like very, he was not happy with the way Sari has been treated by them. Right. So it wasn't like he was being like so magnanimous giving his sword up to them. It's just, yeah, whether <laughs> no, he knew no, or no. not, he's probably doing a really good thing here. <laughs> well, if you think about it, like he knew exactly what he was doing in that moment. So when Cotillion was like, huh, your sword. And he's like, yeah, that's, yeah, don't, whatever you do, don't take my sword. Right. He wanted Cotillion to have it. So. I think it's appropriate that his enemy has it. All right, so they're asking him questions like, why did you give him the sword? And he's like, he took it. I didn't give it to him. And then why didn't the hounds or Cotillion kill you? And he says, would you blame the tool or the hand that wields it? So he has an answer to them. And then he says, with the palm, he's got the, the auditorial sword's handle in his hand. And he says, why don't you leave now before I return Cotillion's favor? So they vanish and depart. And then Perrin strips Lorne's armor off of her, and he picks her up, and he carries her away. And I don't know what's going on there, but again, it was showing compassion and respect for an enemy that I didn't anticipate. What, what in uh, in Opon? No, 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 no. That, uh, that Perrin, he stripped of her armor, yes, but then he picked her up and he carried away, as in... It, it's it, it what however you look at it it's respectful unless he intends to do something horrible but i don't think that's in his character right <laughs> if lorne had gone the other way if lorne had abandoned the mission i think that like they would have been buds like that could have been they liked each other like from the from the get-go she was attracted to him he was attracted to her they just weren't in they weren't cooped up together like he and tattersail were it could have gone a completely different way She's like a child. I mean, she's she's his age exactly. They're very, very young. And she just got murdered, ironically, by thugs in the street, right? Do you remember when she said that there's no way that Sari could be taken down by a thug in the street? Yeah, I did. And here, here she was. She got, she got murdered by thugs. Well, it's all, you know, you can't take those ones lightly. <laughs> I, I, I don't think thugs is the right word. I think you nailed it when it's like the antithesis of the bridge burners. I mean, they're like top-end special no, forces. No, no, we're talking about Meese. We're talking about Meese and a real yeah. Oh, yes, you're right. Actually, that they, they dealt a killing blow. You're correct. It was thugs in the street. You're right. Yeah, and those were her words. Those no, her you're words. right. I mean, I, it is funny that she would be, oh, it can't happen, and it did to her. It happened to her, and she was expecting to kill Sari. I'm giving Agents of the Eel a little more credit than Thuggery. But, yes, they are oh, yeah. thugs. <laughs> For sure. <I'm, laughs> they're in disguise as thugs. <laughs> but Perrin carrying uh, Lorne away, 
And I like that with her armor off, she proved lighter in his yeah, arms. And it just did. It, yeah. it was a very, it was a touching moment for sure. Okay, so let's talk about identity again really quickly. Lorne wore the adjunct like armor. She wore that identity like armor. That's how she defended herself. That was like what gave her her strength. It was like an exoskeleton for this girl. And when you strip that away, all that's left is the girl that is Lorne. And that is the person that I think, you know, could have ended up with Perrin, gone on some crazy awesome mission with Tool. You know, who knows? Like, come back around. But no, no, she's dead. She's dead in the streets. You said that so well. I am sad. I am sad. The dragon soul taken known as Anamander Rake is diving through the night's darkness. Below him is a dun dragon soul taken demon lord of the Galane, his equal in size and power. Yet he's unaware that Rake is diving on him. And that is where we leave this chapter, gentlemen. Dude, that's horrible. Like, seriously, that's like a horrible cliffhanger. Like, I want to know what's going to happen. I also want to know what's going to happen, and I'm going to gratify myself by reading the chapter. Oh, it's happening. The final chapter of the book. Like, right after this recording? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, But before we get there, let's, let's, let's ask a couple of questions. Humor me, as it were. These are hypothetical questions, okay? I don't expect an answer. I don't even want you to openly speculate. But this is where I was left at the end of this chapter. Is it possible that Lorne could be healed? Uh, What is the fate of Baruch and Derudin? Right? Because I care about Baruch. And who will rise victorious between Andermanda Rake and the Demon Lord? Like, it's not every chapter that we end on, like, multiple, multiple cliffhangers. Because, you know, Vorkin's running amok right now. Uh, and you know what? Someday, someday, one of those Morant munitions is just going to crack due to weathering. And the whole city's going to blow up. Wasn't it based on, like, the thickness of the clay and, clay, and how, much, yes. how much acid they put on there? So they're, like, timed. Oh, my gosh. Those are going to go That's... eventually. It seems like they need to strip the roads completely if they want to actually prevent Darugistan from eventually becoming a cinder. Oh my gosh. Or cut out all the gas. I mean. Yeah, turn off the main valve. <laughs> that's that's the real mystery. 20 years from now, what's going to happen to Darugistan if they survive this? How did it blow up? Nobody, Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Oh, there were those funny Nobody guys knows. that were in here one time. Remember those road workers? Yeah, that they had a bar gas road worker with them. Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm super excited to get to the final chapter for gratification, but also because I'm super excited to record our last chapter, edit it, and then release it. I think that like we started down this road close to a year ago now, and you know, we're going to we're definitely going to go over a year before things are said and done. But we're you know, we're we're up to the next chapter. The next chapter is the last one. So how can they end this book in one? I don't small, know. This is not a long chapter. I don't know. 13 oh, pages. 13. Oh, well, it's it's 10 pages in a epilogue. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. But I mean, we know that Erickson is capable of putting a pretty concise sentence together. So. He can definitely do it in 13 pages, but like, I know for a fact 
that there are things that are going to have to be left to other books, right? And I actually remember things that I don't wish I remembered that I thought were in this book. And I'm like, no, there's no way. It's not going to fit in 13 pages at this point. So, hmm, we'll see. Well, uh, do you guys have anything to add? Mm hmm. Uh, let us know what you thought about this book or this part of the book also. <laughs> Who's your favorite yes, character? Okay. That's what I really want to know from you all out there. What's your favorite color? What is your favorite color? Is uh, Animander Rake the uh, the coolest character clear, or is it not Quick a color? Ben? I mean, why is it Ooh. one or the other? Is Ooh, Sorry Absalar? Um, yeah, is it one of the deities? Cool. Who would you want to be possessed by of all the gods <laughs> that we've seen out there? If you if you needed to ascend and have someone inside you to do so, who would you choose? Man. <laughs> Jeez, you all. That's a... Uh... <laughs> all right. Thank you for joining us for this episode, the 23rd chapter. Join us next time in two weeks' time for our final episode of this book. Take care and have a good night. Good night. Good night, all.